You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate Batteries outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keat. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. What's going on, everybody? Here we are recording in the studio for another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm Matt Dye, and we've got Kyle and Frank coming on the podcast. Kyle and Frank are both extremely talented, knowledgeable consultants for Land and Legacy who just went on a trip with myself to Central Florida to work a very special property. What we're going to do on today's podcast is walk you through the property, um, the diversity, the disturbances, the plant communities, start to finish, what we saw, what we encountered, what we were then recommending, and how we're taking a fantastic property currently and taking it to the next level. This this is not one that's like, hey, I'm I'm struggling to see deer or see the caliber of deer or or I'm 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 only hearing a couple of turkeys got much. We're talking lots of turkeys. We're talking great quality deer for Central Florida, and we're taking it to the next level. So there's a lot of great nuggets um, to to take out of this podcast. And Kyle and Frank do a fantastic job, not only in the field, but then coming on the podcast too and discussing the the finer points of property management and how to assess and then make these recommendations to to move the needle on habitat on wildlife on on the land and the property itself so we appreciate you listening to it and um before we jump in 
we want to give a quick shout out to First Light. Firstlight.com, fantastic hunting apparel. This past weekend was out um, the first morning sit of the year. And it's the first time I actually had to wear base layers and um, the Catalyst pant, Catalyst jacket with a couple layers on underneath. It was 33 degrees, no sun, 7, 8, 10 mile an hour north wind. Um, and being the first sit of the morning or first first sit of the year in a tree stand, um, it was it was cold. A cold way to get started on the morning sit. So um, I stayed warm, though, by layering with the wool-based layer system. Um, the fuse and the arrow wool-based layers were fantastic. And I just can't say enough about um, that full system, getting yourself outfitted and knowing how to layer properly, and then breaking the wind with the Catalyst soft shell outer wear. It was awesome. I stayed comfortable and I plan to do it again this week. I will have very similar temperatures, very similar weather, and only difference is this time I'm going to go an arrow, hopefully a great deer that's starting to show up pretty frequently. So I'm excited, but go ahead, check out firstlight.com, get yourself some great gear, stay comfortable, stay longer in the field because you're warm. Now, to the podcast with Kyle and Frank. Hope you guys enjoy. Alrighty, do I have Kyle and Frank on the line here? Yes, sir, Matt. I'm here. Yep, I'm here. Perfect, perfect. Well, I think that uh, we've got a pretty cool treat today for the listeners because I know all three of us enjoyed the trip, um, and it, I keep kind of reflecting back to it as we're putting this plan together, the three of us. Um, and just all the fantastic things that the property had to offer. So I'm I'm excited to do a podcast, and I think that uh, many people will, their eyes will be opened up to the opportunities that Central Florida has to offer. Um, but uh, I first off want to give a shout out to you guys who killed it down there on the consultation. Um, this was a this was a big property. Um, so we definitely wanted to take, uh, as many people as we could to be able to cover it. Um, there's multiple owners involved. So we, we also wanted to be able to, um, discuss and kind of have a, that one-on-one feel for the consultation, but, you know, talking turkeys, talking quail, talking deer, it ran the whole gamut of all those topics. And, and you guys out there in the field were just uh, dropping knowledge bombs, and, and it was cool for me just to be a part of it and, and uh, watch all that happen. But, you know, props to you guys, number one. But then, two, just just real quickly, each of you, Frank, go ahead and go first. What was, like, your number one takeaway for this property wildlife-wise coming out of central Florida? Well, first off, let me say uh, thanks, Matt, for uh, including us. This was a an, a, a wonderful trip, um, just an excellent time, not only on the, on the consultation part of it, but working with you guys and to, and, and to echo kind of what you said. The cool thing is, is each of us brings a little bit different perspective yeah. to the table, um, 
Uh, one may be more deer oriented, other may be more natural oriented, another one may be more quail game oriented, but it all worked together very, very well. So first I wanted to say that. Um, but in terms of terms of what I what I took out of it as as sort of what I thought was really great about this property and maybe surprising was was the diversity of the property we were on. I was thinking, you know, I've just seen photographs of of South Florida or Central Florida, aerial photos and whatnot, but you tend to think of it as I tended to go in with maybe an idea that it was more swampy or mm-hmm. deep swamps and things like that. And and there were certainly some portions of that, but there was significantly uh, different communities on that piece of property that I um, I thought really added to the property, really added to its its function in terms of having a rich wildlife resource. Um, and I was surprised at the at the truly abundant abundance of the deer and turkey, especially on the property. And it was all because the diversity on that property didn't favor one species or species over another. Mm, Each of these species had a had a different had a wide variety of of habitats to use. Uh, that was my number one takeaway out of it. That's a great point. What about what about you, uh, Kyle? What was really fascinating to me was the the intactness the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. of the landscape. So oftentimes we see properties that are surrounded by hostile habitat, or maybe even within the property, some of it's hostile, and you know the neighbors is severely overgrazed or completely unmanaged timber, and this part of florida although there was some you know non-native forage on on some neighboring properties but overall this i mean there's tens of thousands of acres of fairly intact habitat Um, Mm -hmm. certainly hasn't had as much disturbance and fire as it did you know historically but i mean that's what adds to that diversity frank just described it was basically still kind of remnant habitat from thousands of years ago and that lends all this diversity and which lends itself to holding all this wildlife so it was kind of fascinating to see something that's basically not near as screwed up as most uh, most of the things that that man has you know um, altered to a, just a, such a significant state absolutely you anytime that i prepare to go eastward from Missouri and and do consultations, and I'm really preparing myself for what are those disturbances, what are the the land use practices that man has then implemented, or or previously, right, 1700, 1800s, like what was occurring in this region, how was it settled? And you look at Florida, you know, people have been in Florida for a long, long time, and and many parts of Florida have changed drastically, but this region specifically, and and this I should say neighborhood, and I don't talk talk about neighborhood like surrounding a thousand acres. We're, we're talking big chunk of Florida was very intact, and and to go there to witness it and have have the privilege of of being on a property in in an area like that was one just awesome, but um, was also at the same time just 
rewarding to know, hey, there's still these pockets here, even even eastward from Missouri. There are still pockets of uh, amazing, intact, primarily native landscapes that you can go to and see just vast numbers of plant species and wildlife thriving because of that vastness um, and, and just kind of that respecting nature and the ecosystems that are there and just watching them develop. So that was super refreshing to me as well. Yeah. That, you know, it's funny as you're, as you're talking, something kind of popped into my mind. And when we think about these, these large uh, intact native landscapes, um, typically wildlife thrive very well in them. Uh, but wildlife is sort of a byproduct of these these intact landscapes. So, for instance, you think about the sand hills of Nebraska, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's an intact landscape that is intact um, primarily because it's great foraging for cattle. So, and it's sandy, so it can be plowed very well. But um, prairie grouse species, uh, deer, whether it's whitetail in the bottoms or mule deer up, up higher. Uh, pronghorn, lots of other species are thriving very well in in the sand hills. But what's cool about Florida is that a reason a lot of that is intact is because of quail. So we don't think about that. This in, in that particular part of Florida and even in North Florida, quail, a species that we want to hunt and we want to promote, is driving the intactness or the native or that landscape remaining native. And I think that's fascinating because it's sort of the other way around. It's not sort of what we typically think mm-hmm. about, you know, mm-hmm. most native landscapes are native because they're, uh, they have some kind of agricultural value or they're, or they're really remote out West, you know, and whatnot. But, but this remains native in a large part. And we'll talk about that more because of the quail culture. And I think that's a fascinating way to look at the importance that a wildlife species can have on maintaining diversity for a whole lot of other species that are down there that have nothing to do with quail, but quail are, are what is that, that keystone species that's, that's causing these other species to flourish. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, kind of a paradigm sh- shift of, of what we typically see across the country, yeah. which is, which is fascinating. Um, uh, we're always, we're always up for a, a new challenge and a new look. And, um, this was that to a T. So, you know, I, we ha- we had a lot of different focuses on this property based on the um, the landowners and their wishes, desires, and goals. But um, three of the key species was bobwhite quail, wild turkeys, and white-tailed deer. Um, so I think just for the podcast sake, let's just kind of go through those in that order of okay. Here's what we saw for this specific species on the property. Here's what we're going to recommend and how to address that. And then we'll jump to the next one. So um, whoever wants to start it off with with quail, go ahead and um, just jump right in from what it was you were, we were all seeing and then go through some of those recommendations to take the quail um, aspect of this property to the next level. I can take a stab at it to start here. The On the quail side, um, we we saw what we would commonly see um, as as the shortfall maybe, and that's where there is habitat, but lots of times it's not enough disturbance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interestingly, you know, in this situation, most places we go, if 
we're looking for quail. It, it's too thick of too thick of grass, not enough forbs, you yeah. know, the, the old school CRP kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, you know, down there it's 12 month growing season. So there's plenty of opportunity for, for things to grow too much. Well, yes. instead of being rank grass, it's palmettos. Mm-hmm. So the lack of, they've done some fire and they're doing a, they're, you know, doing a good job of, of rotating around some fire, but just not to the intervals that historically went across those landscapes. So palmetto dominating a lot of that open um, flatwoods kind of habitat that pine overstory, you know, sparse pine with, uh, with this should be more, um, diverse understory herbaceous layer but some of it was you know 60 75 percent palmettos so it's just a matter of of getting kind of back in balance and releasing the grass and forbs man they were there i mean we saw some pretty conservative forbs species absolutely lots of different species um lots of different native grasses it's all there it's just not enough fire uh, so gonna be some mechanical methods to beat back some of that palmetto and uh, roller chopping those kind of things uh, along with fire and and the the seed source is there it's it's ready to roll and we even saw units you know as you remember Mm -hmm. that that were expressing themselves exactly so we were able to show them it was nice hey that's this is what you want right here this unit, you know, yeah. these other three units need to look like this. So. so I think that's a fantastic, fantastic point to make, Kyle, is these these landowners, they were making sure that they were they were using all the right practices. They had done some mechanical means. They are utilizing prescribed fire because they were already using disturbances on the property we toured a lot, and we would get out, and we'd, we'd we'd discuss, okay, what was done here, how long ago, when was it done, what time of the year, and all of those disturbances allowed us to basically formulate an equation that we could take and say, okay, here's what we're seeing with this with this type of disturbance, we're getting this response. Well, in this, we're getting this response. Truthfully, we need to kind of break that cycle that's currently been happening rearrange it shuffle it up and now this new formula is going to produce this result but to to any other property owner that either were were scheduled to come see or you know is is interested in the future disturbances is like a a look into the future if you will for us when we come and say you know we can suspect that this will return we will suspect that this will based on previous land uses or just the natural history of that area but since they were so um, frequent and and managing the property well it gave us great insight insight so we could really fine-tune again that interval equation what that would look like and I think what you know we're we're in the process of putting the plan together but specifically I, I think that the equation it's going to be very fine-tuned based on what they had, sh- basically what they had done to show us what the property would respond with. Well, yeah. I, oh, sorry, Kyle, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I just had one comment to feed into that. You said it when we were down there, Matt. It was so nice to have results mm-hmm. 
to be able to show them, hey, 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 this is what we want right here. You nailed it in this unit. Because oftentimes, you know, on properties, you're talking about this hypothetical, <laughs> yeah. well, we want more of this. It, you're trying to paint this picture, but you can't actually point to anything. I can they roughly could see describe it, it with their you. own eyes. Absolutely. Yeah, they could see it and say, oh, this is what you want. This is what we're talking about. Yes, we want this, but across 500 acres instead of 50 acres. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's, that's an excellent point, Kyle. And, and the, the point I was going to make feeds right into that in that um, uh, these fellows here on, on this property were fortunate in that they live in a landscape where quail are still uh, a big part, where wild quail hunting is still a big part of the culture, where the culture of wild quail hunting is not lost, as it has been in a lot of of the eastern and actually midwestern United States. Uh, these folks kind of had a framework. They had been around enough quail management and, and, and enough properties that had quail as their focus to have a framework of sort of what this should look like in terms of density of trees and, and maybe in terms of um, you know, density is palmettos. So they, they had they had the general idea, they had the framework, and they had some pieces on their property that matched that. So it was an easier a light bulb to turn on. I should, you know, maybe the best way to put it, it was an easier switch to, to flip on than maybe other landowners do, who live on a landscape where they want quail, but the quail hunting or quail habitat is, is not is no longer part of the culture. It may be a little bit harder harder to for them to envision. But these folks had the general framework. They knew sort of where they were going. And with the great examples on their property and with the expertise that we brought in, showing them, hey, this is what it should look like, they had a much quicker grasp on it, I think. So so living in a in a landscape where quail still is a part of the culture was key. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. That's a great point. And I think the other aspect is <clears throat> you know, like they had been doing so much, so much work that, you know, it allowed for us to show those examples. And then that learning curve was, was shortened by it because they were, you know, in the field all the time observing what was happening as, as some of the land managers were, were putting this stuff into action. But you know, they had with all that existing knowledge and, and expertise that they had, we're still fine tuning. You know, we we go to a lot of properties where, you know, it's just absolute bare bones or there's um let's say on a scale from a habitat, you know, it, it we're we're coming in at ones and twos and threes where there's a lot of room for improvement. But like this property was was well off um in its rich diversity of, of plant communities, but you know, wildlife as well, the wildlife responding, but that doesn't mean because you're seeing success and, and having, let's say good harvest rates, good hunter success rates, whatever, that doesn't mean it can't be better. So we're, we're taking a system that's working and functioning well, and we're cranking it up even more by fine tuning that process. And, and we had a chance to sit down with, with some of the, um, the managers there and really work with them. And I think I know when we were leaving, we were like, guys, 
want to make sure that you know what you guys are doing is producing great results. We're to come in and our job is to really fine tune this process, but what you guys have done thus far is allowing all of this success to happen. So like when we come with recommendations, you know, know we are starting off way ahead than most people and and we're just again, we're fine tuning the process. So not every consultation let's say has to come from a desire of like, hey, I can't go another year because the hunting is horrible. And maybe the hunting's great or the hunting's good, but if you think it can be improved, it probably can be. And and this was the, you know the aspect of that. But there's there's one other I think portion to the quail side of things that that can be hit on and I'll let one of you guys take a take a stab at it. But in some of the fields that they did a lot of the quail hunting, and some of this, you know, there's there's some wild birds there, uh, but they do release a lot of birds um, throughout the season. But one of the things that was a, a key missing factor, and we'll we'll bring it back in um, when we talk about the other species, but the the shrubby like definitive headquarters that you've heard Kyle and Frank talk about a lot that was kind of missing in this. Florida flatwoods uh, habitat or the way that the property had been managed. So guys moving forward, knowing now that, okay, we're recommending the Covey headquarters, how should they begin to implement those in this type of landscape? So if someone's listening and they feel like, hey, I'm, I've got a super grassy, like, you know, kind of native grass-ish type field, what are some, what are some of the opportunities to implement, you know, this sh- shrubby, Covey headquarter type habitat. I'll take that one if you would, please. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we're recommending that they, you know, we're, we're increasing the burn regime. So, of course, it's going to make it more difficult to sustain shrubby headquarters of, of whatever species. But there's some pretty simple things a person can do. You know, you can go out where there are some um, shrub thickets already out there. Uh, simple as just disking a ring around them, mm-hmm. not babysitting them through the fire. Certainly not. Hey, we got to keep completely keep fire out of there, but make a couple passes, uh, disc a couple rings around some of these, you know, maybe the size of a, a garage or a shop. They don't have to be huge. Yep. And, and if those are scattered out across the landscape under every hundred, 150 yards, you know, something like that. Um, the fire will, will certainly slow down. You won't slam into these things near as hard. Sense um, so, the edges and kind of continue on about yep, it business. Yep, I call that thermal edging. So so the center is going to probably not, some of those won't top kill out, um, and maybe some of the edges will. They'll stool back out. So, you know, after a couple burn cycles, that'll be noticeably taller, noticeably thicker. And even where they don't have, um, shrubs present we're recommending in some of these units to, to just disc a circle around same size you know around a clump of palmettos and just let that grow up a little more because what they were seeing is they're when they flush a covey sometimes they're flying off the quail course you know yeah. down south they call their quail hunting units uh, courses and sometimes they're flushing off the course so it's in some cases, limiting uh, the huntability 
of these quail. Well, if we could increase the amount of time that the quail stay within the course, um, we could increase the harvest percentage of those birds, potentially maybe reduce the number of birds being released and still maintain the same covey flush rates. Um, So without impacting the huntability and the hunt success and the hunt quality, perhaps they could reduce you know, the number of birds being released, which would substantially save some money, could be put into other types of management. Yeah, definitely. And there's a yeah, lot um, of carryover for the other species with that specific type of habitat present. Go ahead, go ahead, Frank. Yeah, yeah. And I was just going to add um, that, uh, you know, whether we're talking about the, the Midwest right, or, the, or the upper Midwest of Iowa where it's cold wintertime or, or in central Florida where they rarely get a frost, um, shrub component is critical, is needed by Bob White. It's escape cover for them. In the north, it serves as thermal cover and escape cover. In the south, it serves as summer thermal cover, not so much winter, but summer, but also escape cover. So Bob White's needed. And so it's it's a characteristic component of Bob White habitat wherever Bob Whites are found. So, um, but now it's going to look differently. You know, it may be palmettos, that, as Kyle mentioned, you disc around or, or you let grow up a little bit taller, whereas in, in Iowa, it may be, you know, dogwood thicket or, or a plum thicket. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, Matt, some of these places that we saw were really devoid of those simply because of the fire return interval and maybe perhaps some of the fire timing. And that was going to be a, a, a big consideration in terms of our management is to provide these not only for huntability, as Kyle mentioned, so they wouldn't leave the course and to and go down in some some thick swampy edge where they couldn't couldn't be hunted effectively, but also to increase survival, because uh, if they're flying shorter distances within the course, then you're going to have a greater survival rate. So these uh, these shrubby clumps are are pretty darn critical when we're talking about quail management. Yeah, and I think that they you know just a, the the co- very quick point or principle is in the absence of a necessary habitat feature quail were spending less time on the course the more huntable areas and now by adding that habitat feature in we feel very strongly that the usability of those quail course areas will drastically increase and hold more birds tighter So take that principle and you can apply it to your own property and say, what habitat feature am I missing for wild turkeys or for deer? Well, you may be experiencing the exact same thing as if I have a void, I then might see, or excuse me, if I have an absence, I might then see a void of the game species um, that would be utilizing that habitat feature during a set time. Um, So things do leave areas um, when that habitat feature that should be present is not. And um, so that's a great wrap up on the quail side of things. But as everyone can probably imagine, turkey hunting in central Florida is a big thing. Um, This is Osceola country and um, there was no shortage of turkeys on this place. We saw groups uh, of turkeys the the whole time we were down there a four-day-ish span 
we did not see a hen without poults. I mean, there was tons of young turkeys. Production was was seeming to be great that year. Cover everywhere. We were seeing groups of gobblers. We're seeing, you know, six here, eight there, ten there, just everywhere on the property. So it was fantastic. But this is another, uh, I guess, point to be made or reiteration of a point is turkey hunting was good. Very good here on this property. But we're going to take it to the next level and make it that much better. So, Kyle, do you want to take take, take the stab at, you know, okay, here's where the turkeys were, but here's what we're going to be doing moving forward with the turkey – the turkey hunting and the management of the uh, habitat features for wild turkeys. Yeah, let me take a stab at the the hunting side. I'll leave the you know some of the habitat changes that are going to benefit the turkeys for Frank and okay. you know just huntability. So they're already having good success on this property with turkeys, but there was some very distinct areas. You know, we there was a, a handful of places we drove by and they're like, oh, right here, just sort. This is where turkeys strut every time, you know, I can come right here. It's dependable. And we figure out pretty quick that there's two or three of those areas. Mm-hmm. These are what, which huntability wise, I guess, makes it more predictable. But at the same time, that limits how many people can successfully be out in the morning. If sure. you have, you know, only three main strut areas. Uh, and this is multiple owners on this property. So, and one of their goals um, too was to increase usage of turkeys on on a different yep. portion of a property. So we are really scheming to to pull turkeys across a great you know distance for for a lot of usage. Yeah. So we, just for huntability's sake, um, we're gonna you know create some more strut zones. There's some stuff that was really close. Uh, I mean, close to being usable. But just dense enough, uh, surrounded by too dense of stuff, maybe two bull palmettos, uh, you know, just different features that would prohibit a turkey from comfortably pushing in to an open area. We would find some open areas sometimes, say, hey, they could strut here, but then you look around and it's got a wall of stuff around it. Yeah, and but how do they get in gonna, there? Right. Yeah, the turkey's not going to crawl through the dark, you know, dark, scary hole. <laughs> Uh, to get into the open spot. And I mean, you're, that's just and you're terrifying. certainly not going to call one into that. No. So it's, you know, just some simple manipulation, and we're going to really be able to increase the the turkey spring use strutting areas, uh, mm-hmm. which will really open up the opportunity for, for more people to be hunting each morning, uh, to be more spread out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. Yeah, Kyle, I'll, uh, like Kyle said, I'll jump in sort of the habitat stuff. And one of the things I want to talk about first is I wish, um, you know, I wish everybody uh, in, in Missouri and in most of the Southeast that are lamenting declining quail numbers um, could have a look at this landscape and see you mean what turkey one numbers? of the major, yeah, excuse me, excuse me, the declining turkey numbers, excuse me, um, and see just what this landscape looks like and it is matrix of, of large landscape areas of great nesting and brood habitat mm-hmm. i mean it was great nesting and brood habitat throughout a large portion of this property but also on the neighboring properties it could be better as we will as we will talk about 
but it was actually pretty good as it was. And if you look around much of the Midwest, much of the Southeast where turkeys are declining, you know, where they're down somewhere 30 to 50 percent since the heydays of the of, you know, 2005, 2006, you know, in these areas lack good brood and, ne- and nesting habitat. So, um, so, you know, it, these, these places, this, this property was really, um, was really benefiting from the past management that created the conditions where, where nesting and brood conditions were, were very good. Now, one of the things that, that we will, are going to recommend and we're recommending is, is there's a large portion of the area sort of north of the major creek that went through there that it had a lack of prescribed fire over time and a lack of mechanical um, uh, maintenance. And so one of the things we're going to recommend is opening that up further, sort of mimicking as, as uh, that quail course look, not quite as open, not quite as as as, um, as herbaceous as some of the quail courses, but, but sort of getting towards a more open landscape. So we're increasing brood habitat. We're increasing travel lanes because a lot of these places – turkeys would not travel down these certain field roads or, or travel because it was just a wall of palmettos on each side. So if we can, if one of the things that we were going to recommend is, is removing some of that to enhance the ability for turkeys to move from one end of the farm to the other end of the farm. Uh, we were going to look at, uh, we recommended uh, spreading out strut zones throughout the property. So once we got these travel corridors set up where turkeys could more easily move, where there was an expansion of quality brood habitat throughout the property, then putting in strut zones where we go in and recommend mechanical removal of, of the palmettos there, allow turkeys to really uh, have good open habitat. Uh, one of the things that, that really stuck out to me were, were these live oak hammocks mm. that were down here, sort of these these picturesque sort of typical South Florida, big live oak hammocks that, that had a, had a closed canopy, but produced lots of mass that had, um, you know, scattering of cabbage palms, but a very open understory. These were the areas where typically, typically turkeys like to hang out down there, according to, to the landowners. Some of them, as we talked about on the South end of the property were hard to get to because there was, there was, um, reduced travel from good turkey hotspots sort of in the middle of the farm down to the south end because of, of too many palmettos. So one of the things we we're going to recommend is is connecting those two features, areas where turkeys are really using now to areas where they would like to use them in the future by improving travel corridors. And once that's done, putting in strut zones to make hunting more predictable, but also to increase the or sort of de- de- decrease the competition between gobblers trying to use these certain strut zones. Um, so we were looking at it from a habitat perspective to increase production. Production was already great, but we could take it to another level with better brood habitat throughout the property, um, different fire intervals, in, or excuse me, different fire timing. We talked about some of that. Yep. Some of their fire timing on some of the quail courses probably weren't optimal for turkeys and they probably weren't optimal for quail. So we recommended kind of shifting some fire timing 
where the quail would benefit, but also turkeys would benefit. Um, so we had it from from all different aspects of it, from from when they were nesting and brood rearing all the way up to to hunting management. And I think I think that is really going to to increase the number of turkeys that they can have on the property, but also spread out the hunting, as Kyle mentioned, have more gobblers available to more people each morning by having live ochemics that are more occupied and then strut zones that are that are more scattered throughout. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there, guys. You know, one one of the words that from from this site visit <clears throat> that just continues to come back as we're revisiting and rehashing out those conversations with the landowners is just composition and and structure density of these these openings and I say openings, but like the open flat woods. Um, and, and so I think we should probably take a second to, uh, I guess, Frank, you kind of, Kyle, you kind of hit on this earlier, but the majority of the farm was very sparsely um, growing pine trees. And so like full sun all around, like it was a very intense, let's say Savannah like feel across much of the property very scattered pine trees, and then that very dense, um, overdone palmetto composition underneath. But there were the pockets um, that had the the native grasses, the forbs, and then anything along the edges of these live oak hammocks um, or the cypress heads was a great combination of um, some American beautyberry, fetterbush, wax myrtles, um, this just transition layer back out into that, that pine flatwood, um, area. So, you know, all across this farm, there was just dense, dense cover. And like you talked about, um, Frank, it was as you're touring the property and and you're looking at a, a turkey, um, you you just you, you're not your heart didn't go out to him, but you're like man, it, it would just be you'd be walking around like on pins and needles because the majority of the vegetation was was five foot and down on this property, um, unless you're in the live oak hammocks, and we saw a lot of turkeys in and around those areas on the edges of the swamps and and the, the live oak hammocks. But if you're trying to to walk throughout the majority of this property. You've got to be on edge, you know, from a bobcat perspective, every corner you turn, there could have been a fantastic ambush spot. So this property was way on the other side of the spectrum from what we typically see. Most properties are way too open underneath. But this property, it was having fantastic brooding and nesting habitat, but, but really we needed to decrease or change the composition of some of that to make it more usable where turkeys are more freely traveling throughout the whole property and utilizing the whole thing rather than just this these certain key pockets and aspects and so you guys hit hit on it with the strut zones the fire timing um i think is going to be fantastic too for these for these guys because you know instead of some summer burns burning just prior to and ahead of turkey season from a strutting standpoint from a um bugging standpoint 
is going to drastically increase the usage of, of wild turkeys in and around those burns when it's timed perfectly just before season rather than after season when they have the potential uh, of turkeys nesting in all this great cover. So I, again, we're, we're taking a, a species that is doing well, numerous birds on this place, and we're cranking it up even more. So, any other notes, guys, on, on the turkeys? Oh, I think you covered it pretty well. Perfect. Yeah, the, the only the only note that I would, would add, and um, we talk about this so much, uh, Matt, as you know, is we talk about the concept of usable space, as that is a way to maximize yeah. your wildlife populations. And we talk about it mostly in terms of Bob White, uh, but... The same could be said for wild turkeys uh, in this landscape. Wild mm-hmm. turkeys are doing very well there because there is a lot of usable space from roosting trees all the way down to nesting and brood habitat. There is a lot of usable space. So think about that. If we had the Ozarks as usable as that part of Florida, just think about how our turkeys would respond because there would be just vastly more usable space for them to raise their broods. Yeah, there'd be pockets of unusable space as as there is down there. But this whole key is this usable space concept. And and Kyle and I, and I know you guys really preach this. It's it's an important concept when you're evaluating a piece of property. You ask that question, is this usable for the species that I am? trying to manage for mm-hmm. and that's and getting it to that usable you know 90% of the battle in some cases what what would you say now that you mentioned that so i would guess would you guys agree that you know we talked about palmettos being too tall too thick and some of that they were probably at 67 60% 70% usable space for turkeys on a lot of that farm would you say yeah yeah. Yeah. And we're, I think so. Yeah. And we're we're gonna and so think about that. I mean, you you raised a great point. We're gonna try to take it to ninety percent, right? Yep. That that's that's moving well, the needle a whole third essentially. But but think about at sixty percent usable space, they're loaded with turkeys. For, for, I mean, from any measure of, of across the country, yes. someone would go to that property like you're loaded with turkeys. And and from yeah. the hunting observation, I'll I'll leave it at this yeah. for to paint the picture. They were not talking about turk a couple turkeys here gobbling, a couple turkeys here. They they would mention there is a wall of gobblers in yes. front of you when you sit here in the morning. A wall. So we're talking so, double digits plus of gobblers gobbling out in front of you. So there's loaded with turkeys so we're taking that 60 percent usable space and turn that to 90 which tells me that and i mean we see it but which tells me in the the rest of the country where turkeys are struggling we're dealing with on a lot of farms 10 percent usable yeah. space 20 yeah. percent and we're we're people are wondering well what's happening to my turkeys yep well we're trying to you know maximize turkeys on 10% of, you know, usable space. It just doesn't work that way. Think about this. Right. And, what's what's 10% of a 200-acre farm? 
Yeah, yeah, not right? Enough. 20 acres. <laughs> right? Yeah. 20 acres. Yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. the majority of what everyone's facing. So if if you're an isolated pocket, you say, hey, well, guys, I got 200 acres. Well, what about the neighbors? Are they at 10% of their property? Yeah. If not, then yeah. you're you're a sitting duck. I mean, it's It'll, very difficult. Right. And another another point that I will bring up is they are doing this in the face of probably historically high raccoon numbers mm-hmm. on that farm, uh, wild hogs Absolutely. that are ubiquitous part of the landscape, snakes that um, essentially never go dormant like they do here. So they are doing this in the face of a lot of pressures. And they that, have coyotes um, and bobcats. Yeah, coyotes and bobcats. And uh, you know, a lot of what we hear is, oh, there's there's too many predators. That's what's keeping things down. And and we know that there's historically high predator populations. Um, but they're doing this in the face of all of those pressures. So what it tells me is even with all those pressures on the population from a nest predator standpoint all the way up to an adult predator standpoint the usable space is swamping out all of those pressures such that the turkey population is is as abundant as as it is so that is a great um example that people can look at and say wow you know this usable space concept um it works I mean, it, it it legitimately works. We don't have to start addressing predators first. Let's address the usable space first. And then the other stuff that we do is supplemental and just builds and builds. But we've, we've already won most of the battle with getting the habitat where it needs to be first. I would be, I mean, tickled if the Ozarks had 60% usable space for wild turkeys. I mean, the oh. like, you wouldn't be able to sleep on a spring morning. If sixty percent of the of the landscape was usable space, I mean, there'd be so many birds, and um, yeah. it, it would just be it would be shocking. But you know, think back historically, a lot of the historical significance of of uh, the Ozarks would have been very high usable space for turkeys, extremely high. Well, that's the misconception, right? I mean, people think that. Well, I've got. I've got some woods. I've got timber. That's usable space. No, the entire Ozarks is timber right now, and most of it is not usable space. You just referred to back when it was because the appropriate disturbances were occurring, and it was 60, 70, 80, 90% usable space 300 years ago. But now, I mean, no kidding. We know. I I bet it's 10% 10% in a lot of mm-hmm. places mm-hmm. because there's no disturb. It's just closed canopy forest. There's zero herbaceous understory or very little, no bug attraction, no forbs, no grass. Just, yeah, it's, it's, Absolutely. it's a no brainer when you start thinking about, it. but people need to wrap their head around. Well, what is usable? Because just having a chunk of timber is not usable. That's very, very true. Um, so, what about white-tailed deer? Um, you know, Florida, <clears throat> I feel like, often gets like the, oh, if you're a Florida deer hunter, you got to leave the state to be killing deer, right? I mean, it's just, it's not, you're just wasting your time. You're kicking tires when it comes to deer hunting. Um, and, and like, driving throughout the property, you begin to slow down and look around, there's food everywhere, 
And when you have a growing season like they have in this portion of Florida, or heck, all of Florida, I mean, you're talking about a lot of food and a lot of herbaceous opportunities throughout 12-month period. Like, there is the ability for good deer. And and these folks are killing 140-inch deer. Um, they're talking about some neighbors killing 150, 160-inch deer in Central Florida. On, again, going back to the very beginning of this podcast, very intact landscapes. We don't have to have, you know, food plots, crop fields to make all this stuff happen. They're talking the more deer that they've seen um, the last three years than they ever have, you know, in in the, the 40 years hunting it prior. So there's building and continuing to develop um, a very robust uh, po- deer population in conjunction with a ton of turkeys. It's not one or the other. There's so much overlap here, but... I guess I'll touch on some of the the whitetail stuff and then ask you guys' opinions. Um, You know, what what we're seeing a lot of is in these areas, great mass production from live oaks. And there's another um, shrub there called um, runner oak. And we're talking a two-foot tall, at at most, shin-high level oak um, species that was very kind of shrubby, bushy, but just kind of running along the ground. And it had acorns on it. And we're talking like a typical white oak-sized acorn, not some shrub, a tiny little um, marble-sized acorns. We're talking legitimate acorns. The browsing opportunities on all those woody ends, the American Beautyberry, Gallberries. Um, there are so many different types of, of species. The Paul Meadows produce a soft mass uh, that, that um, deer were certainly foraging on all the different forbs across the property. Uh, in addition to there's even some maples. We haven't even mentioned sawgrass ponds that were on, on the property in this kind of marshy um, inland little uh, pond that's just naturally occurring. I, I think I've counted while doing the maps, there's, there's over 20, um, I think like 25 or so sawgrass ponds on this property. They range from an acre to to two or three acres in size, and then the outside edges of these um, areas are just extremely uh, like perfect mixture composition of shrubs, grasses, and forbs for white-tailed deer. So you know, usability was extremely high for white-tailed deer. They had lots and lots of food. The fire um, interval was was good for producing that um, that ample food supply for deer. But one of the things that these landowners had, um, if you will, implemented um, in conjunction with some of the the, the quail courses was this large wildlife corridor. They wanted to still have hunting on portions that they were doing a lot of, I guess you say, up, I mean, deer hunting on portions that they were doing a lot of quail hunting on. So they left a very large buffer um, in between quail courses and and kind of had excluded some management from those areas and uh, were just deer hunting them, you know, as the season went on. But the composition, because what was left alone or not managed, um, even for deer, in the growing seasons, the rain amount of rain they get a year, 
was extremely dense and like way too dense of vegetation. Fetterbush, wax myrtles. The palmetto was was crazy. I, I, I what do you guys think? It was probably six, seven foot tall, loud, noisy. It, it, it was a fantastic idea. And the reasons behind doing that was was very sound from a you know security principle standpoint um, of, of trying to move deer back and forth. But even the movement for for deer through these areas was was very difficult, um, and it was it was putting or it would have put a forced deer to try and move throughout the property. Um, in areas that they did not have a, a, an advantage from an eyesight, um, from uh, a quiet maneuvering throughout the property. Again, those palmettos, there's so much vegetation. They're just extremely loud. Um, so that center portion was getting a lot less usage. So what we're actually doing in, in some portions of the property is taking this, in some areas it was, 400 yards wide or, or more um, corridor and we're splitting it. We're, 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 we're going to basically have two corridors and then the very center is going to be managed very similar to what the quail courses or the upland flatwoods would look like mixed with the sawgrass ponds, but um, very, very user uh, usable space, herbaceous. Um, and then we'll have some more denser, thicker areas that will actually produce a little bit of a canopy in the years to come that will then thin out some of the understory of the palmettos so so deer can actually walk through them, um, which is really kind of the reverse of what a lot of people hear. Uh, so there's, there's no cookie-cutter uh, management, especially when you're dealing with this type of drastic changes in, in a landscape and in a region and a climate. Uh, when something's growing 12 months out of the year, it's very difficult to stay on top of things from a land manager. So they have they face unique challenges, and and one of them, um, like I said, is just trying to manage for actual mobility through these corridors. But when that happens and those um, breaking up of the corridors is in place, I'm extremely encouraged to see uh, you know what that will do for hunting observations and success in these areas because all around these corridors are fantastic opportunities for bedding, for feeding locations when they're introducing um, fire on different rotations. I'm just, I'm pretty pumped because there's not going to be a portion of the property where you couldn't go and on a spring morning and hear turkeys gobbling, or you couldn't go on a fall day and, and not see deer moving, or probably run into quail and, and, and hogs. Like there's there was a very segmented portions of the property, but, you know, prior to us arriving. But our goal is to spread out all the resources and then fine tune the vegetative composition across the property itself. Um, and so like even, I guess that one main corridor was on the kind of the south portion of the Creek, but on the north portion of the Creek, again, that the, the density of some of the shrubs was just extremely high there. I think there was, there's some portions that had super heavy palmettos, 
but uh, there seemed to be a lot of shrubs. And one of the other vegetation types was um, the scrub areas on the north side. And Frank, I, I know you've done a lot of research on that, um, and it's extremely interesting. So I'll kind of let you touch on that. But you know, these these scrub oak flats, they were extremely like uh, eight, 10 foot tall um, oaks. And they, the the acorn production this year on them was, was incredible. And I think we made the jokes like, I want to take these home and bring these to the Ozarks. Cause like, if we could get rid of like all the trees, oak trees that we have, or, or, or a portion of them, I guess I should say, and replace them with like a shrub forming oak, it'd be incredible. Habitat wise. Oh, yeah. um, great. But, you know, it, just the, the the differences across this property made for some awesome, awesome hunting. Um, but to tie back into the quail side of things and the Covey headquarters, there was so much potential cover on this property that it was near impossible for hunters to narrow down or pattern or identify what would be bedding cover versus, you know, uh, or, or a common term, you know, sanctuary. A deer could have laid down anywhere and they would have hid. Um, and we kicked up deer kind of in all the different habitat types uh, throughout the couple of days, but there was just so much cover. So by changing the composition of these um kind of open flatwoods areas by reducing the palmetto, bringing in, or not bringing in, but managing for more grassy herbaceous areas and leaving these bigger shrub pockets. Well, now we just increase the form value or, or quantity and quality. Um, and then we've also isolated some better pockets of cover by having these garage-sized shrubby headquarters out there um, in these flatwoods areas and so instead of like 200 acre opening savannah type setting where a deer could have laid anywhere in those 200 acres based on the sawgrass ponds the position of those and these covey headquarters we're we're probably narrowing down quality bedding into 30 acres so just from a hunting standpoint well now our success is going to really increase going from like, oh, they could be 200 acres anywhere out there to well, it's probably going to be like there's a strong possibility there here in this pocket, that pocket, that pocket, or this pocket. And so I think overall, we don't, you know, we don't face this very much. Usually we're having to like add cover because of uh, mo- most farms are extremely closed canopy, just haven't had the disturbances. But here, man alive, there was... There was cover everywhere. So, Frank, talk a little bit about that scrub aspect of the property, and then and then Kyle will transition to you on on some additional thoughts about the white-tailed deer. Um, because really, you know, as we've really honed in on quail, we've really honed in on on turkeys. The deer, by default, well, they're going to do amazing. Like if if we didn't really like fine-tune anything specifically for deer based on what the quail are experiencing habitat-wise and what the turkeys will, the deer are just going to blow up anyhow. Um, Size, and I I just, we wouldn't have to do anything super specific. A lot of what's specific is for the deer is simply 
putting deer in predictable areas and then managing the corridors for improved access and mobility. But um, anyhow, I'll quit talking. Frank, talk to us about the scrub. All right. Yeah, this this scrub is is cool. It, it was it represented a very small part of the of the property, but it was one of the most fascinating parts uh, to me because of um, because of the structure of it, because of what was there. Uh, that, that wasn't really present on the other part of the farm because of the species that use it and just because of the way it, it, it and where it grows. So back up a little bit, when we think of, of Florida, it's it's flat, right? I mean, it's flat. So we were we were talking to the fellows about elevation change and it's, I mean, it's minimal from one end of the farm to the other, something like 12 feet or something. Yep was was the maximum elevation change on the farm so we're talking about we're talking about micro topography with respect to what we are used to certainly in in the ozarks but but really across the eastern united states um but it was cool how that how that changed so on these on these quote ridges these this elevation that was about 12 foot higher than the rest of the farm it was funny because we got up there and it was windier than any other place that we had been. And we were joking around, oh, we're up here on the mountain, up on the high ridge, and it's windy up here. But uh, but it was it was a little bit windier. But what happens is on these tall ridges are these really deep sands. So as, as erosion occurs, as wind, whatever, blows uh, most of the organic material off into the, to the lower parts of the, of the landscape – we're left with these ridges of sand. And as if anybody's been around a lot of sand, it's very, very nutrient poor. There's not a lot of rooting structure. Uh, there's not a lot of, of, of vegetation or basis or otherwise on largely sand soils, especially these sands that didn't have a lot of organic matter. So this was the case here is this scrub is really, um, is on soils that are really deeply sandy. Um, there's very, very few tall trees, mostly sl- slash pine, uh, maybe a long leaf or two, but 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 very few tall trees. Mostly these scrubby oaks. So from like you talked about up to shin high, up to maybe ten or twelve feet, and there's several different species of oaks here, uh, and very very sparse herbaceous cover. So there's some grass. There's some uh, three on of, of um, broom sedge or or lespedeza or not excuse me but uh, blue blue stem type grasses there's some scattered forbs around but it's certainly a lot of sand between clumps and so you would think of this as a fire adapted community and it, and it kind of is uh, but the fire frequency interval the fire return interval on these scrub sites is actually much longer than it is say on the sandy pl- flatwoods because there's not a lot of fuel on the ground to carry a fire so it takes a lot of fuel buildup for these things to burn. But because they are on a dry site, when they do burn, they tend to burn catastrophically and burn everything sort of down to ground zero. And then it takes another several years for the process to repeat itself to build fuel load. So it's really a kind of a fascinating process that that the scrub that this Florida scrub has, and um, it's home to some really cool species that are rare, 
one of the ones we saw there was the gopher tortoise, which mm-hmm. was a first for me and Kyle, I know, and maybe you, Matt, I don't, I'm not sure. But, I had seen uh, we, gopher tortoise holes yeah. and sign on other farms, but I had yeah. not seen actual turtle itself. Sure. Yeah. So we got out and took pictures and geeked out about the gopher tortoise for a while. And, and, um, so it was, it, these, this scrub community is, is fairly, very, very rare in Florida, in fact, and only constituted a small amount of the farm, but, um, it's one that, um, has some really, really restrictive management because, you know, if we did recommend a prescribed fire on there, to be able to carry a fire through there is going to have to be in, in a year where where it's fairly dry because the fuel loading is low or they'll have to wait till fuel load builds up. And then if they get a fire in there, it may be very hard to control and hard to handle. So that's going to be a management management trick there to, to try to manage that. But there's some other things that they could do to, to access hunt or to, to improve huntability and, and enhance wildlife uses that we recommend. But it was a, it was again, a, it was a another part of that farm that was was interesting that added its own value apart from any other natural community on the place and that was one that that these guys should be proud that they have on their property and then it is it is as well uh managed and is in good shape as it is because mm-hmm. most florida scrub is gone uh either through development or through lack of fire over time that's grown up in all kinds of shrubs uh, where a fire would be really catastrophic. So it was, it was a really a unique, um, it was a unique community type. And, and um, I think those guys appreciated um, us being able to come in and tell them exact, you know, just really what they had and how special it was. Yeah. And it it played certainly a great role from, from the mass production standpoint, there are so many acorns. Um, There was, pig tracks there were deer tracks there were turkey tracks all up and down those sandy um roads and and it was it was very important to said this this overall property that it was present and intact and functioning um and and being a productive portion those acres were were definitely productive towards the the goals of the farm so it's a def it's it's cool to recognize it see something new um but then know that hey it's functioning properly and it's adding to the value of this, this, the said goals for the property. So, um, Kyle, any other thoughts when it comes to, to white-tailed deer that may have missed out? Like I said, they're, they're such a generalist species that yeah, it's fantastic that they're there. But what we're talking about doing for the quail, the change of the intervals and the turkeys, I'm, I'm, I, I know that that's going to apply so well to the deer. Well, when we started developing this plan, we broke it out into community types, into, you know, habitat types, ecosystem types. And this farm has six distinct, uh, we split out a couple mm-hmm. more further than, but six distinct um, ecosystem community types. You know, the scrub being one of its own, flatwoods being a different one. That's just crazy diversity, yeah. you know, on one farm yep. to have very six distinct. different natural community types. So that in itself should tell you, if you ever listen to this podcast, diversity rules. Well, if you've got six community types already on the property, and then we're going to increase the plant diversity 
within those community types, mm-hmm. I mean, you just can't go wrong with the, the deer. Yeah, this is a, a deer just sitting perfect. Um, anywhere they go, it's, it's going to be improvement. Um, it's already good. It's just going to get better. More food, cover in the right um, heights and, and structures. And yeah. Yeah. I found the one last thought on the cover. It it was almost like the you touched on it where most places you guys go, you know, it's you're trying to add cover. It's closed canopy forest, and you got to add in bedding thickets, and people know they listen. This was almost like the ultimate land and legacy irony. <laughs> but it was we're looking around and we're like, yeah. you guys got way too many places for deer to bed. <laughs> this is way too many. One hundred percent 180 flip from what yeah. normally happens the only thing would have been even better is if adam would have come and told them they needed to plant some cedars or something. <laughs> but, yeah. it would have truly been the land and legacy opposite day or something yeah i mean it but that was that's what i think makes this this consultation and, and the podcast so fun to to revisit and and go to talk about in details because it was so drastically different from what we typically see in a property. And it was refreshing to see something that was advanced in, in so many ways, uh, diverse in so many ways, managed in so many ways, but then to say, Hey, this is great. Well, we're, we're still going to make changes and fine-tune all these different aspects. And when this, the bulk of the plan is put together and in place on the property, I j- I, I'm so excited for, for five years down the road for the landowners and that communication back and forth to hear about the success and the changes that they've seen. Um, because I, I, when you've already got great populations of deer, you already got great populations of turkeys, quail. They're they're successful. They're happy with it. So when you take someone that's that's pretty satisfied already, and you could take it from like satisfaction to like overwhelmed and overjoyed, man, that's great. Like <laughs> that's really cool. And I think that that's exactly what's going to happen um, with this property and the plan as it's put into place and put into action. So, guys, any any last final thoughts here before we wrap up? I have I have one that I'll uh, that I'll add in, and it was and it was funny because I've seen it before on consultations, um, but it seemed like it was even even a little greater on this time is um, is just the, the absolute light bulb going on with the landowners mm-hmm. and the realization that um, that they were getting an in the field education that they i don't think we're expecting as yeah, yeah. we um particularly you on the deer side um and then and then kyle on on, on some of the quail stuff and, and, the, and the wild turkey stuff was able to point out um just the amount of forage that was out there just the amount that of of native foods as you were guys were pointing out deer nipped on this look deer browsed on this they were like show me and so we'd pointed out say oh look deer browsed on this what show me and then they i I remember them saying wow we had no idea that their deer were eating so much of this stuff out here 
they mentioned, yeah, when we're deer hunting, we see and pick on this and that. But what it did is it informed them about what they had and just what the deer were browsing on, but it'll also allow them to go by the end of it. They were showing us, oh, look, deer oh, browsed yeah. on this. Oh, look, oh yeah. See, here's a partridge pea. Look, look at this. Look at this green briar that deer browsed on. They were showing us. Yep. So they will never walk their property. And they said this. They will never walk their property again with the, with the, with the same perspective as they once had because they will be looking at things that they never knew. They'll be looking for brows. They'll be have their head down looking at stuff. Oh, they never, and they they may miss a deer too because they're looking at something <laughs> else you know, on the ground. Don't have their head up. But that was really a that was one of the cool things about this is to see um, that these that these gentlemen I think got more than they expected from a on the ground you know perspective of what they had. And, and I sat back and it was it was cool to see that. And these gentlemen, they're not in the wildlife management field. But they were acting like plant geeks by the by the end of day two. Oh, oh was, they got nerdy with us. Cool yeah. They got nerdy. It was pretty cool to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, one one of them even commented. It's kind of fascinating when that light bulb does go off. And and one of them commented. He's, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily frustration, but almost, gosh, I feel, you know, how, how have I been missing this all the time? I mean, this is now that you pointed this out, it's so obvious. Like. Why didn't I know? I've been hunting deer for 40 years, and why did I not see this or understand it? And you say, well, I told him, I said, I don't walk in your office and know everything about what you do because that's not my expertise. This is not your expertise, right? I mean, they just don't think like that, and and most people don't. Mm. It's nothing – they're not dumb people. These are highly educated people we were dealing with. Yes. Um, they just don't look out the, out of the same set of eyes that, that we do. And I'm not bragging. It's just this is our everyday business. This is what we think about, and, and they don't. Uh, so it's kind of a, a shift in thinking, a paradigm shift for folks that, hey, there's more to, more to it than just, you know, sitting in the deer stand and, watching a deer you can read the landscape and and really get a deeper more in touch with the the whole system and i think it's a lot more satisfying than when you are sitting in the stand and you have that deeper uh, sense of uh, being in touch with the landscape without a doubt oh no it's 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 super super interesting and it's like yes like you said they're they're never going to see that property or look at it in the same way and and for for me, I think that was day one. That, you know, that that was a goal that we had shared as as land and legacy with them. Is like, this is what I want you to be able to take away from this experience. And then having them say that on their own at the end of it was like, yes, got them. Like, I if we can share and impart that much uh, education with them throughout the experience, then I know knowledge appreciation um 
you know, they're going to take the, this new knowledge that comes from the plan and the report, and it's going to all the other light bulbs of what we were talking about and how it's going to relate with this and relate to that. And then you'll see, you know, probably a feature like this on, on this portion. And it's just going to just be a, a chain reaction of additional light bulbs. And, and they're going to take the plan, run with it, implement it. And it's just going to be awesome, awesome from, from here on out, um, continuing to work with them. So uh, I'm, I'm pumped for them. Um, and, I'm, and I've had a, a good time putting this plan together with you guys, just brainstorming. Um, it, it's, it's definitely, um, I, I would say I think it's a piece of art, but it, it's, it's going to be cool to see it put into action um, and, and how all these com- components are you know, weighing in on each other and, and balancing everything out for these, these three different main species that, uh, that we're trying to promote uh, on the property. So, guys, thank you so much for your time tonight and, and coming on the podcast and, like I said, reliving this Florida consulting trip. So we certainly appreciate it. Yep, you bet. You bet. It was great. Well, there you have it, guys. Obviously, Florida was a great trip, a great consulting trip for Kyle, Frank, and myself. And uh, we just enjoyed that property so much. Enjoyed the changes, uh, the habitat types, the the vast amount of wildlife that this property had. And and, um, the hosts and landowners were, were fantastic. All around, awesome trip. So we appreciate you guys listening. Um... We're getting into hunting season, like the grind of hunting season. A lot of great actions happening. Trail cameras are lighting up. Head over to the other podcast. Make sure you listen to that one if you are um, experiencing great pre-running, pre-rutting activity as well. And, and don't know necessarily what the next step is, okay? So you see cameras lighting up. Well, we're going to walk you through exactly how to um, make those next decisions on where to hunt, how to hunt, how to be aggressive, and where and when not to be aggressive too. So um, appreciate you guys listening. Before we leave you, be sure to go over to Niangua Coffee. Check them out at the website. It's a subscription-based coffee that our good friend Nathaniel Maddox and family have put together. Great product, great family, great friends to land and legacy. Check them out, Niangua Coffee. Dot com. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.